Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. Hello? Have you checked the children? Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Welcome to Unhinged Episode 11, recorded on June 5th, 2016. Today we journey into the deep dark recesses of the psychotic mind. We will explore the unthinkable, the disturbing, and pure evil. The brain, twisted and malformed, diving into a swirling, sucking eddy of despair. And, 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 no, no. Ch- chill out, chill out. Sorry, we're not going to sensationalize this thing. We we talked about this. Sorry, sorry, I got a little carried away there. Well, it's easy to get carried away with such a subject matter. I mean, who doesn't like a good scary movie? That's right. I know I do. I know you do. Yeah. Because of our inherent interest in the subject matter, whether it be scary movies or uh, serial killers, psychopaths, sociopaths, and sort of what makes them tick uh we decided to do this show but again not sensationalizing the topic as as often a documentary will do Mm -hmm. but to really sort of try to understand um the differences between uh sociopathy and psychopathy and um what's exactly happening in the brains and giving some examples of of um classic in this case serial killers that have been studied and um, and the differences now uh, with brain imaging, um, similar to the brain imaging that's being done with me. Right. So um, so we thought we'd get into that and understand the important distinctions between criminal sociopaths and psychopaths. How do you tell one from the other? Yeah, that's definitely something that's, uh, that I never really knew. Like, what is the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Well, and, and you and I have watched these things for years and read about them and, and, and even the psychology of it. And, uh, but it's, you're not the only one that's um, a little bit sort of um, in the gray area on that because mm-hmm. many forensic psychologists, psychologists, criminologists, um, they use the terms interchangeably. Right. Um, leading experts disagree on whether there are meaningful differences between the two conditions. Um, but there are those that contend that there are clear, significant distinctions between them. Uh, and uh, from a, a, a source at the Psychology Today uh, and uh, the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as DSM-5, which I've seen that book in every psychiatrist's office, it's kind of the Bible, which is released by the American Psychiatric Association. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2013, they list both uh, sociopathy and psychopathy um, under the heading of antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD. Um, the disorders share many common uh, behavioral traits, uh, which lead to the confusion between them. Um, for example, key traits of sociopaths and psychopaths um, share 
uh, a few distinctions. Um, one, a disregard for laws and social mores, mm -hmm. uh, a disregard for the rights of others, a failure to uh, feel remorse or guilt, and a tendency to, to display some sort of violent behavior. So that's what they have in common. Yes. Uh, in addition to their commonalities, sociopaths and psychopaths also have their own unique behavioral characteristics. Sociopaths tend to be nervous, uh, easily agitated. They're volatile. They're prone to emotional outbursts, fits of rage. Uh, they're likely to often be uneducated and, and live on the fringes of society, you know, really unable to hold down a steady job or stay in one place for, for very long. Mm -hmm. uh, it's difficult but not impossible for sociopaths to form attachments with others, but um, many are able to uh, even form an attachment to a particular individual or a group, um, although they have no regard for society in general or its, or its rules. Mm -hmm. In the eyes of other sociopaths, will appear to be very disturbed. Um, any crimes committed by a sociopath, including murder, uh, will tend to be haphazard, disorganized, uh, and spontaneous rather than planned. Hmm. And here's where the real distinction is. A psychopath, quite on the other hand, they're unable to form those emotional attachments or feel real empathy with others. Um, and a key area of the brain that we'll be talking about is the amygdala. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the source of, of empathy and, and being able to feel what another feels. So, you know, although they have very disarming or, or even charming personalities, um, i.e. Ted Bundy would be the best example of that, um, they're very manipulative and uh, can easily gain people's trust. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy on Charles Manson. Is he a serial killer because he had others do it for them? Or he's right. clearly, based on what I just said, clearly a psychopath. I mean, there's yeah. no question about it. Um, they learn to mimic emotions uh, despite their inability to actually feel them. Uh, they'll, appeal, they'll, they'll appear normal to unsuspecting people. Um, Charles Manson didn't do it as much because he had this incredible intelligence, but he was able to realize, well, LSD will do that for me and help me yeah. uh, take these directionless youth and mold them and make them think that I'm this sort of higher power, really. Yeah. So really the, the main difference is the emotional side of it between sociopaths and psychopaths. So a psychopath, and sometimes both, uh, they have no feeling of empathy, no remorse, um, it's a personality disorder. It's not a mental disease. Mm -hmm. They know right from wrong. They just don't care. Right. So it's we have a a clip from psychologist Kevin Dutton, uh, who presents the a, a classic psychological test known as the trolley problem, uh, which basically is a way to to see if you're a psychopath or not. Um, so let's let's listen to this. Imagine you've got a train and it's hurtling down a track. In its path, five people are trapped on the line and cannot escape. Fortunately, you can flick a switch which diverts the train down a fork in that track away from those five people, but at a price. There is another person trapped down that fork and the train will kill them instead. 
question, should you flick the switch? Now, most people uh, have little trouble deciding what to do under those circumstances. Uh, though the, the thought of flicking the switch isn't exactly a nice one, uh, the utilitarian choice, as it were, killing just the one person instead of the five, represents the least worst option. Okay? But now let me give you uh, a variation. You've got a train speeding out of control down a track, um, and it's going to plough into five people on the line. But this time you are standing behind a very large stranger on a footbridge above that track. The only way to save the people is to heave the stranger over. He will fall to a certain death, but his considerable bulk will block the train, saving five lives. Now we've got what we might call a real dilemma on our hands, okay? While the score in lives is precisely the same as in the first scenario, five to one, one's choice of action appears far trickier. Now, why should that be? Case one represents what we might call an impersonal dilemma. It involves those areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the posterior parietal cortex, in particular uh, the anterior parasingulate cortex, the temporal pole, and the superior temporal sulcus, bit of neuroanatomy for you there, uh, primarily responsible uh, for what we call cold empathy, for reasoning and rational thought. Case two, on the other hand, represents what we might call uh, a personal dilemma. Uh, it involves the emotion centre of the brain, known as the amygdala, uh, the circuitry of hot empathy, um, what we might call the feeling of feeling what another person is feeling. Now, psychopaths, just like most normal members of the population, have no trouble at all with case one. They flick the switch and the train diverts accordingly, killing just the one person instead of the five. But this is where the plot thickens. Quite unlike normal members of the population, psychopaths also experience little difficulty with case two. Psychopaths, without a moment's hesitation, are perfectly willing to chuck the fat guy over the rails if that's what the doctor orders. Now, moreover, this difference in behaviour has a distinct neural signature. Uh, the pattern of brain activation in both normal people and psychopaths is identical on the presentation of the impersonal moral dilemma, but radically different when things start to get a bit more personal. Imagine that I were to hook you up to a brain scanner, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and were to present you with those two dilemmas. Okay? What would I observe as you went about trying to solve them? Well, at the precise moment that the nature of the dilemma switches from impersonal to personal, I would see the emotion centre of your brain, your amygdala, and related brain circuits, the, the medial orbitofrontal cortex, for example, light up like a pinball machine. I would witness the, the moment, in other words, when emotion puts its money in the slot. But in psychopaths, I would see precisely nothing. And the passage from impersonal to personal would slip by unnoticed because that emotion neighborhood of their, their brains, that emotional zip code, has a neural curfew. And that's why they're perfectly happy to chuck that fat guy over the side without even batting an eye. Well, that's... Uh, first, I want to thank Dr. Kevin Dutton from Big Think uh, for that explanation. Uh, we'll have the uh, the link to that video in our show notes. Uh, but I have to tell you, there's just no way I could push the big guy 
uh, off the tracks or onto the tracks. I couldn't do it. That's because you are not a psychopath and you have a very healthy uh, prefrontal cortex, including the amygdala. <laughs> yeah, and plus I, I, you know, I, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for big guys. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, you're mushy, but we love you. Yeah. <laughs> so the the brain region that really is uh, affects the emotion of empathy. Um, it keeps going back to the amygdala. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as psychopaths go, they they have this no sense of morality and no sense of of right from wrong. Um, and they are finding that childhood trauma and bullying and those kind of things can affect how the brain develops. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, researchers used uh, fMRI, magnetic resonance, um, to inmates uh, in medium security prisons. And they were shown that um, where they saw people getting hurt, uh, like, for instance, slamming your finger in a, in a car door, and if you just winched when I said that, yeah. <laughs> uh, then you're probably not a psychopath. Um, <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, so when they did this imaging on particularly the right amygdala, um, these activate when they thought of themselves in pain. But when they thought of others in pain, there was no reaction. Hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's pretty kind of clear right there um this is the area we get um sense of of pleasure so psychopaths um like it when others are in pain some sociopaths unlike psychopaths uh, they don't kill because they necessarily wanted to but um because of a skewed belief system Mm-hmm. And again, we remember from the last show when, when Murray Goldsmith was talking about the belief system, uh, these are those learned behaviors. Um, and uh, sometimes it's, you know, a martyr for their cause or, they're, you know, they're doing it for God or whatever is in their, right. their skewed, um, uh, distorted minds. But they still have an emotional response, unlike psychopaths. Right, right. And... and Scientists still wonder whether uh, this, these skewed belief systems um, can actually change patterns in the brain, or is the sociopathic brain just simply wired differently? Um, there's a lot more research needed, and, and most scientists will agree on that. So to me, it sounds like a sociopath can actually be created by a very poor childhood, by childhood trauma, bullying, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And that's why really, you know, when I was going through years and years of being completely socially withdrawn, uh, after years and years of being bullied, um, you know, you're left up to your own devices. And mm-hmm. that's where likely psychology and neurology, um, you know, become important as, as a, you know, comparing the two and as a pair, mm-hmm. um, because, as an example of what you just said, Joel Rifkin, um, who uh, was a prolific serial killer, killed 17 uh, prostitutes uh, along uh, New York City and Long Island between around 1989 to 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was someone who grew up with no self-confidence, no self-worth, as I did. And mm-hmm. 
I, of course, want to disclaimer: I'm not comparing myself to these people. <laughs> um, and and really, a lot of because other parts of my brain did function correctly. Mm-hmm. Had they not, this could be a whole different type of scenario. You might be yeah. interviewing me for prison. You right. know, um, a scary thing to have to sit and think about yourself when you have nobody to bounce these things off of. So, so that that's amazing because that means. Uh, you could have actually become a sociopath had you not had the, you know, the empathy that you have for other people. Yeah, I, I developed in a very similar way to Joel Rifkin, a, a, a noted classic, horrible serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was bullied as a child. I had a learning disability. Uh, that which was ADHD and in his case was um, a real severe case of dyslexia. Uh, He was not athletic. Uh, He would get to school right when school started and he would leave sort of after everyone left. I remember doing those things uh, because, you know, trouble starts when you get to school and everyone's around and uh, you try and, um, you know, be kind of a ninja, you know, because you're at every corner is, is, uh, is the bully. Um, so it's, uh, it is a little bit freaky to, to know you sort of started that way, but, um, yeah. it, it's how these people change in Joel Rifkin's case. Um, he withdrew into himself and when he was with himself, he, he developed a lot of just, um, fantasies, uh, deep, dark fantasies, uh, um, you know, which, was one thing he called actually was um, gladiatorial, uh, where uh, he envisioned two women fighting each other uh, for him as the reward, huh. you know. Uh, and then it developed into stronger things, into strangulation and into to actually maybe killing somebody. And uh, he had actually um, at one point decided to go off to college and. Uh, he was a virgin, um, and because he was rejected by women uh, in the normal sociological sense, uh, so he decided um, he needed to change that, and he went and he found a prostitute. Uh, and after uh, you know experiencing a prostitute for the first time, that became his drug. He became obsessed with acquiring, watching, uh, lurking, and then acquiring prostitutes. Uh, over and over, and it and it wasn't until way into that where one one particular prostitute uh, he spent hours and hours. She was a drug addict, and he spent hours and hours trying to uh, he, he, take her to get her drugs, and then she would want to sleep a lot. And this happened for a ten twelve hour period, um, and this is when. FBI profilers think that he just sort of became the killer. This was a turning point because uh, I maybe out of frustration and uh, that he wasn't in control and she was in control and he was sort of just her gopher. Yeah. Um, and uh, at some point he picked up a large metal blunt object and just started um, hitting her over and over and over until she expired. And that he got what he says, and when he was interviewed, um, you know, that's when he got a real sexual release. And yeah. the killing subsequent to that never quite was the same. So you're chasing that 
that sexual relief. I've always heard that that uh, that serial killers are always trying to get that same feeling they had with their first kill and they never can reach that same high. Yeah, and in Joel Rifkin's case and others, um, they use sort of totemistic things. He would keep um, jewelry, bracelets, necklaces, uh, driver's licenses, um, AIDS medication, I mean, just all kinds of things where they were tokens that he took from each victim. And later he'd be able to touch those things and go through those things and relive those things and get that sexual release from them. Uh, Mm. And, you know, of course there's a risk of keeping those things because those things are tying you to several murders. Right. But, but this drug, this, this compulsion they have is much more important to them. Uh, You know, and they're, they're completely, uh, I guess I'll use hyper-focused in, in on getting that, uh, that, you know, that's what's, driving them and that's what's driving their brain now that's very different from someone like say ted bundy who was a psychopath he had no yes. emotional ties no no feelings for others well rifkin of course was a psychopath as well and and ted bundy had his own ways of doing that with ted bundy um it was really um well he was never comfortable within himself uh, he found out early in life that he was illegitimate. Um, so there were a lot of, um, I think he found out that his sister was his, was his mother. And mm. uh, Anne Rule writes uh, extensively about this in uh, The Stranger Beside Me because she worked with Ted Bundy at a, a, a crisis hotline, believe it or not. <laughs> when people were in crisis and uh, having mental health issues, they would call in and Ted would, be there, and he sat right beside Anne Rule, who, you know, at first they were friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, they can be, they can fit in like chameleons in society. Uh, and you see this in interviews too. They can keep a flat affect when talking, is even talking about specifics of murder. Um, and they can be extremely charming. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so Bundy was very premeditated, like we talked about before on the difference of, you know, a sociopath, it would be, it's not premeditated. This is a, a, a sudden thing. It's not a thought out process. And yeah, sloppy. And yeah. Yeah. These guys are uh, very premeditated and, and um, you know, there, there are even ways to, to see um, in their eyes. Uh, and, and sometimes just things are just too perfect. Yeah. They, they will start off by making in this, he's just the, the greatest guy in the world. Uh, and then they'll just see something a little bit strange. And it's that where most people don't, they, they, they might write it off because, oh, well, he's so great that it's probably nothing. You know, yeah. but that, those are, that's exactly, if you could catch where it's like you just see, all right, something's not right here is where, you know, a lot of victims would have been survivors. Right. Um, but uh, with Bundy, it was a, a manipulation and control, um, which gets me into right away as far as control when I think of Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm. Um, you know, a, a real troubled childhood, had a real um, tough time fitting in. Uh, I think he knew that he was gay at an early age. Um, and he had a real tough time 
uh, a tough relationship with his father. Um, and Jeffrey Dahmer would, would, would exhibit control in, in many sick, twisted ways. Uh, and he, uh, uh, like a lot of serial killers, started out killing animals. Right. I think that's why in Psycho they, they made... Um, uh, Norman Bates. Norman Bates um, as a taxidermist, right? Which I think some were. Uh, Ed Gein was, but I won't jump too much. But uh, Dahmer would would take control uh, by drugging his victims. Um, he would frequent gay clubs and uh, put a, a substance in their drink, uh, not unlike Bill Cosby. I know that yeah. I'm being a little controversial, throwing him into the mix, but that is sociopathic behavior. Right. Um, I mean, he never killed anyone. No, but, no, make that distinction. But yes. similarly, he would, you know, be able to gain control of his victim and, and have his way without having to worry about uh, f- them fighting him. And um, Jeffrey Dahmer got to to the point where he was actually trying to do homemade lobotomies, Ugh. and he would drill into the skull into the frontal lobe, if you will, not that he knew it, but into the front of the skull and drill in and try and create a sort of a sexual zombie uh, that he can just use at his leisure. Um, Yeah, sick. And and the other sick thing was uh, that he would really get off on uh, strangulation and taking the breath out of the victim and have his ear to, to their mouths and whatever way he was using to asphyxiate or whatever he was doing with them, um, he would listen for when the air left and they either expired or, or passed out. Mm -hmm. And then he would revive them and then do it over and over again. So the ultimate sense of control. So is it safe to say that there's really no chance of, recovery for these people for psychopaths sociopaths there's no healing um i mean i'm assuming a lot of this might be neurological in nature yeah and and again it's a lot of things to think about is whether that traumatic abuse childhood traumatic abuse uh, um, those types of things could can they affect the brain and change the makeup of the brain um and, and, you know, they're saying that that could very well be. Um, they, uh, they actually uh, think, or some speculate anyways, that the, the psychopathic mind, although it can't be cured, it may be treatable. Hmm. Um, f- for example, starting with a dietary means, um, there were two studies done um, in, in prisons with young inmates um, where they gave them omega-3s. Uh, in in good quantities, and they did a four month study, and in four months, thirty five percent reduction uh, in uh, violent offenses within the prison hmm. after doing that. So, early intervention could be the key. I mean, th- times are different now, and we have medications, and uh, we know more. And of course, with brain imaging, yeah, uh, and that leads even to another subject, which we won't get into, but uh, it's something that people can look up, and we'll probably provide the uh, information uh, but what they term now neuro law and uh, you know can brain imaging exonerate a criminal right uh, and there have been cases where there there 
psychopathic uh, crimes being committed, uh, they then image their brain and they can take that into a court of law and, and possibly be exonerated. So that, that could scare a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know? That's fascinating. Yeah. It's like scientific proof that there's, there's something wrong with the brain. Yeah. So, you know, you put these sociological factors and these, these learned behaviors and associations, all the things we've talked about throughout the course of, of our shows, um, abuse, poverty, uh, you know, sociological factors, um, coupled with poor brain functioning, mm-hmm. um, is really a recipe for later violence. Right. And um, so there's a lot more to be studied on it, for sure. So that that brings me to, um, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, and um, the topic of serial killers and uh, psychopaths, sociopaths, it's it's very interesting to, to most people. I mean, that's why there's a lot of TV shows about it. Uh, that's why there's documentaries uh, made about it. Uh, and I, I want to find out what drives us to to watch these things i mean they are just inherently fascinating at least to me i i love watching documentaries on um on serial killers and i love watching horror movies as do i yeah and uh, we're both have been interested in that and 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 actually one question i had for you is like you know if you thought about it what would be what would be a deciding factor for you to decide, hey, you know, I feel like watching a serial killer movie or a horror movie mm-hmm. uh, versus when Harry met Sally? Yeah. You know, do you, do you speculate on, on what would be maybe different going on and, uh, with your mood, your brain that, that would have you choose one or the other? So as I think, think on it, um, usually if someone asks me, do you want to watch a movie? My first instinct is to go for a comedy. That's always been my, you know, my top genre, my go-to. Yeah. I love comedies. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was also very into, especially when I was a teenager, I was very into horror movies. And I'm talking, you know, Friday the 13th, Halloween, you know, those types of things, which are kind of schlock movies, as they call them. You know, they're, uh, there's nothing really... um, just, to me, they're not really scary. They're they're more entertaining. It's like, oh, let's see how this crazy uh, supernatural being can can kill a bunch of kids in a camp in creative ways, and just right. done in a very hokey sort of way. So it removes you from reality. So I enjoyed those. Um, but as we were talking more, we both enjoy the ones that are really about. Uh, have a real storyline and a and a build up in getting to know those characters and 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 kind of understanding from a psychology point of view you know how they developed and, and yeah right, right? so and, and the whole build up so though so yeah so i just wanted to categorize the types of movies so you know the horror schlock sort of thing is one thing that i enjoy but it's it's not anything that i you know it, for me it's just more like fun same with comedies and then when it comes to things like, say, Silence of the Lambs, or even a documentary on any serial killer, uh, the mood I have to be in to want to watch one of those is, uh, 
I feel like learning something today and I feel like learning something about psychology or, or what makes these people the way they are. And I can sit and watch one of those and just be fascinated by it. Um, so it's not so much, I still would probably choose a comedy first. <laughs> um, and then the, uh, you know, these other ones are, are more almost like I'm a student, like I'm learning and, and it's, it's a fascination with it. Um, well, as I listen to you and I think as, as most people listening would probably think, you know what, that sounds like a very normal brain talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, a lot of things scare me because, you know, I spent so many years isolated. Um, and for me, I think it comes from a darker place. It doesn't come from, well, you know, I always explain that I I'd never felt a sense of control. So right. I feel like this today. I feel like that today. I think my emotions drove a lot of, um, you know, things that happened and, and mm-hmm. uh, decision, decisions that I made. And um, I almost speculate that I was interested in them. Um, and I even rooted for the, the serial killer, you know, kill, the, kill more people, you know. Yeah. As maybe that was rage talking, uh, being bullied for so many years. That was my way of getting some kind of revenge with yeah. actually, thankfully, becoming one myself. But I was uh, into it for a dark reason, you know, um, things that are related to it, almost like uh, if we delved into uh, heavy metal music and death metal and a lot of people like, for instance, Richard Ramirez, uh, you know, he was a tweaker and he was always playing death metal and that's what drove, that's what sort of... You know, instead of having a sob, you've got a sob turbo. You know, maybe it just turbo boosted that, you know, these feelings and mm-hmm. it further justified, okay, we're doing this thing, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if your brain is already headed in that direction, those things would only fuel the fire. You know right. I mean, I, I can't see him going down the road, you know, listening to, uh, uh, you know, Seals and Crofts and or Captain and Tennille. Mur- <laughs> you know, murder the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But for me, I think it, it came from a, a darker fascination. Um, maybe even like, you know, could I be like this person? Because obviously everyone told me I wasn't part of the club. I right. wasn't part of the group. I wasn't like everybody else. I was worthless. I was this and that. And um, so, you, so you kind of, you could identify with them to a degree. Yes. And, and that sometimes got scary. Yeah, that, that because sounds very scary. I, I, yeah, there was oftentimes, I mean, sure, I, I love, uh, I think that the ones that are the, the schlockies, as you put it, and, you know, the Rob Zombie movies, which I, I actually like a lot. I think mm-hmm. he combined he combined the schlock with a little bit of classic horror, yeah. with um, the, um, the strength of certain types of music that would drive the storyline. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he crossed a lot of different boundaries. Um, but, uh, you know, I was interested less in the, uh, I think when I was interested in the schlocky kind of stuff and uh, even the Freddy Kruegers and uh, just over the top things and, and maybe that had a lot of effects and uh, mm-hmm. because that was stimulating. That was just pure stimulation. Right. Uh, just like I love to watch disaster movies, yeah. you know, um, 
Volcano and Twister and Day After Tomorrow and, you know, um, those kind of things. Uh, that was just pure, um, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. And my brain can now get this stimulation to so craves. Yeah. Uh, but the part that scared me is, is, is the types of movies like The Shining um, and, and, like you say, uh, um, Hannibal Lecter and those kind of things yep. where it was, you know, you saw this, this uh, more cerebral and steady um, study of this person and, and learning about them and realizing just how twisted they are the more the movie goes on. And um, there were a lot of parallels. And I've already said mm-hmm. it with, with Joel Rifkin and how you, you're bullied as a child and you withdraw, withdraw into yourself. It's then, though, what your brain does and what it starts to think about and focus on. Um, you know, and that's when the neurology kind of aspect comes in. And so, you know, and if, you know, so chicken or the egg, as far as can this the childhood trauma um, affect legions of the brain or, you know, uh, is it something that's genetic? Mm-hmm. Is, are we genetically disposed possibly? Um, so there's a lot of, there's a really a lot of ground. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's quite vague, but, but quite scary when you start to think, well, God, that that's me there. That's me there. That's me there. Yeah. Luckily, you know? you, you had um, you had enough that was different from them that you you could pull back and realize, well, yeah, I'm not really like them. Um, no question. Yeah, yeah, I never crossed that at all. Yeah. I just yeah. I had that thought, and I think I even said it to you a couple of times, which probably took you aback a little bit. You know, but me saying, you know. I mean, I think think I could be a sociopath, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, learning these distinctions, you know, are really important for people to, to, to not, don't get yourself caught up in that kind of thought process. Well, and you also, um, you went through a period of time where you were watching movies about drug addicts a lot, like The Boost, Bright Lights, Big City, Rush, those types of movies. And that was easy. That was easier to rationalize and to understand because I related to them because of their their sad stories. Typically, they were um, impressionable uh, people without any self confidence and self worth, and uh, they needed that boost in a sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I self medicated, but it was for a different reason. Just like intervention, when you watch, you know, there may be underlying conditions or traumatic events that have happened that they've never been able to, to get through the pain, so they self-medicate. But mine was, you know, for them, it's, they're, it might be a dual diagnosis situation, but it was first drug addict, second depression, or what have you. Where with me, it was the opposite. And I was self-medicating to take away some of the pain mm-hmm. uh, because it ended up, as we have found out, a, a severe form of depression that is unfortunately... Um, quite intractable. Yeah. Do you think that uh, there was also a level of uh, romance to the whole drug thing? Like, for example, the movie The Doors, where mm-hmm. they show Jim Morrison just spiraling down and, uh, you know, getting into drugs very heavily. And, um, and I know that was one of the movies you watched a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, did you romanticize the... The fact that he was a big rock star who was misunderstood and he, you know, 
was you know taking matters into his own hands with the drugs and everything and ultimately ended up dying from it was that was there some sort of like you know rock star mentality to it for you probably and i think it's, it's i don't remember what year that came out uh do, do you know uh yeah the doors came out in 1991 okay so that was our last year in college and i remember uh you were um kind of off doing you know progressing as one should in mm -hmm. college and uh we were still of course as tight but um i remember there was a period where i was spending time with another friend a real close friend yep. to this day uh and he and i both watched the doors over and over and um and and i used to always say that i was sort of the jim morrison of our band yeah uh, that you know if anyone was going to worry about somebody um it was me you know, so I think that carried over um, then later, you know, continually watching those types of things. Yeah. And there were a lot of um, uh, biodramas or whatever you want to call them, biopics yep. uh, about those types of things. Uh, uh, I remember watching the Metallica uh, ones where they were, you know, a lot of dysfunction within them and mm -hmm. uh, they had their first one they came out with and then they had their follow-up, which was some kind of monster uh, and that was dealing with a lot of uh, um, issues they had between the band, but also with substance abuse. Yeah. Uh, and I was fascinated with all of that. And, um, you know, uh, with all the cognitive distortion built up in my brain, you know, I was almost, you know, I was trying to find my identity, which I would have already found, as you did, in college. You yeah. know, that's forming a regular pattern. Uh, mm -hmm. as humans but I never had that so I was still trying to find myself in my 20s my 30s and even 40s um, and uh, alone mm -hmm. you know watching these things and trying to make sense of it but yet with all this distortion in my brain so it was very easy for me to follow either path yeah um, do you, do you so, still uh, do you still watch these types of movies or what what kind of movies draw you now well, you know, when the mood is better, um, I really, I love to watch comedies, my favorite comedies, um, but I'm, I've been more um, uh, apt to stretch and watch newer ones that I haven't seen instead of watching ones that I've seen over and over again, mm -hmm. because again, I was watching those things too, I, as I theorize, being able to be with people but not be with people. Right. Um, uh, so those kinds of thoughts are changing. It's again that the auto CBT. When you're feeling better, you're you're looking for the the genuine things, not the dis you're not fighting through that distortion anymore. Yeah. Now you're looking for things that you genuinely enjoy and that create the endorphins and give you pleasure. Yeah. Um, I do go back to the old ones and what what about Bob and uh, just classic comedies. I love stand-up comedies. Oh yeah. Uh, and being able to watch live concerts of my favorite bands, which before I just couldn't watch it, it was too painful. Uh, and now, as I said in, in a previous podcast, that it either watching it in the severe category, I would just, uh, it would bring so much pain you couldn't imagine. But, but then when you're feeling better, it's the exact opposite. I right. watch it and, and my, this surge of, of, of positive feeling and goosebumps and uh, 
again, I equated, you know, I mean, my favorite concert to an orgasm, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that powerful for me, music, uh, but it can go either way. It's interesting because it sounds like when you're in a, in the severe category and you listen to say Chicago, uh, like one of your favorite Chicago songs, you say, I it, can't listen to it. You can't listen to them because, and I'm wondering if it's because you, you can't at that point feel all the goodness from that so it it makes it worse in that sense yeah and everything is distorted i'm thinking you know uh oh i i met them once and i could have talked more with them and uh i could have been them i could have been on stage playing and uh but you know i can't really put into words the pain part of it but those Mm are sort of some distorted thoughts that i might have been thinking um I remember journaling when I was um, voluntarily, but uh, nonetheless locked in the mental ward. Uh, and I remember journaling and calling it the Chicago effect. Mm. That's what I named it. You know, where um, it was a test of my, you know, I could test my mood if I played Chicago and I instantly started crying this horrible, guttural cry mm-hmm. and, and I had to shut it right off. Um, or my head was going to explode, uh, or if I could listen to it, just listen to it without having that reaction, or listen to it and enjoy it. And yeah. it was it was a way I could gauge my mood. Interesting. Your home is where you're happy. Well, here you go. This is Charles Manson back in 1970, uh, and his own recording. Uh, called Lie, the Love and Terror Cult. Charles Manson's a very different kind of uh, psychopath, if you will. Uh, He had an incredibly, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, he was a product of the system. Um, And I don't mean that to pee off anybody or not, but uh, he was um, not cared by his family, and he spent a lot of his... A childhood committing strings of, of uh, petty offenses and spending time in uh, the Indiana Boys School and um, the Gubbalt School for Boys in, in Indiana uh, and on and on to uh, different types of, of situations and um, completely away from, from parenting and, and growing up normal. But he was infatuated with music and trying to get his music sold and get a record deal. And uh, that actually is what led to, you know, the, the, the most famous and controversial story in, in his uh, career, if you will. Uh, and that's the Tate LaBianca murders. And uh, Sharon Tate uh, moved into the house that was previously owned by uh, Terry Melcher, a record producer, who Charles Manson had met through Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who had befriended Manson, sort of took him in as this sort of, uh, just a wacky guy who people like to hang around with just because he was... Yeah, kind of a bohemian, like a hippie. Yeah, and they were just really fascinated by this five-foot-two, hundred-pound guy who, uh, you know, played this weird music, and he was just real hippie and and all these girls were sort of latched onto him and um but he was the ultimate predator uh and he yes he did use um 
Tex Watson and the girls to do his his bidding for him. Um, amazing, a guy of that stature uh, and growing up in, in schools for boys and uh, just, just a horrible, you know, childhood where he was in the system. I mean, he was imprisoned at first in, in 1951, hmm. um, you know, and, and it, his career began, in, I mean, before we were ever born. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he became a product of the system uh, and, you know, he never felt free and, and, then Spawn Ranch happened, and um, needless to say, Terry Melcher listened to his music and, uh, you know, sort of auditioned him and, and, you know, may have thought he was sort of this uh, uh, interesting character, but it was uh, nothing that was going to make uh, uh, the top ten, <laughs> right. if you will. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, he, he, you know, really, he took these young impressionable girls these girls who were lost uh who had problems in, in their own families they were runaways instead of through just the power of uh, manipulation he used lsd to further his cause uh and and he knew how to manipulate in such a way uh and and as it uh, is been told he would give them full hits of acid while he would either take none or take a very small hit so right. he was still in control, of, and he 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 had a plan. Uh, he knew that he was going to make them believe that he was sort of this higher power, and and they believed he was Jesus Christ. Um, well, and the big difference between him and most of the other serial killers we've talked about is that he never actually did any of the killing himself, but he controlled people to do it for him. So it was all about right. control. Yeah, and. You know, he's directly responsible. I mean, he's the mastermind behind it, and and uh, they had to do it, um, uh, or he, you know, said that you will die, uh, and he would have killed them. Uh, was he capable of killing? To me, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's you know, there's no question about it, and and he, you know, he's the sort of the quintessential um, serial killer that this this sensational um much like ramirez you know he looked on the fringe mm -hmm. you know as opposed to a rifkin or a bundy and they looked quote unquote normal right uh, and that's you know he's the uh, you know really uh, a big influence on uh horror films of today much like ed gein um from the 50s mm -hmm. uh, the butcher of plainfield um, and that's where Toby Hooper, who, who made the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, got a lot of his uh, inspiration from um, just just pure sociopaths. And, and Ed Gein would do the same, where he would uh, take the, the face literally off his victims and put it on his own. So he was uh, the inspiration for Leatherface, basically. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and I'm sure there are many that that uh, you know were based on Manson and that and that whole control and that. Uh, right. I wonder if even some of it with the Doors and people thinking he was Jesus and uh, you know through the music and yeah. the music is very powerful and um, the fact that that uh, the kids at that age were of 
similar as we talked when we were back in college and those kind of ages where you're going from a you know adolescence to to adulthood uh, and you're shaping your whole belief system uh, and he got them exactly at that at those times where they're most vulnerable so and, does uh, that mean was he smart in that sense like was he an intelligent guy that knew the best times to uh, you know get these impressionable kids to to do his bidding or was it just you know kind of pure luck that he did that no i think he you know if you talk about you know the term street smarts he was very good uh whether or not he was you know iq wise but he had to be of a certain iq um and actually um they list his iq as at 109 Wow. Uh, which was uh, tested around the age of 21. Um, uh, but he had four years of schooling, and ironically, even with that uh, IQ level, which is well within the norm, he was illiterate. Oh. Uh, so he knew more about guitar chords than he even did about reading. Um, so, But he knew uh, exactly uh, when to do it and what to do, and I hate to say he did it very well. Yeah, uh, and uh, it one of the girls, Linda Kasabian, who, who ended up um, testifying against him, him and the Tex and the girls. Um, uh, she's the one that uh, somehow just knew in her heart it was wrong, and was able to to overcome that. The rest of them are serving life sentences. I wonder if history would have been different had he gotten a record contract. Hmm. Well, if we uh, if we know Hollywood as we do, they generally make you worse. Yeah. So uh, that's true. But who knows what would happen? I don't think that would really have. Um, I think I would speculate that that at that point uh, it wouldn't be enough. He, yeah. He would always end up taking things over the edge because he had a skewed view of reality, a a a, a cognitively distorted brain. Yeah. And, and all that development as we speculate with the other things we were talking about earlier, uh, probably shaped and changed his brain and the neurological makeup of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, and I guess one question for the future is, is it irreversible? Right. I mean, you know, we talked about whether can it be prevented? Um, Is it irreversible? And with today's treatments, you know, who knows? I hope they do more studying on it, you know, and again, as we open with, we don't want to sensationalize the topic, and we had some levity, of course, yeah. uh, in the show, but, but but we didn't do that. I don't think we did that. I think no, we're, we're, really- we're, we're trying to talk facts. We're trying to, you know, explain the history behind some of these things, and uh, and hopefully it's not coming across as sensationalism because that's we, we don't want to do that. That's right, and and a lot of them are just... You know, a lot of the stories, um, uh, again, like like um, Ramirez, you know, uh, who was, you know, purely very drug-addled and, you know, uh, but studying somebody like Manson can really teach us a lot. Uh, that's why, you know, I, I would encourage people, if they're interested in the subject matter and trying to understand, you know, more what goes on in the brain uh, of a person, a psychopath, uh, and in some cases, a sociopath, um, to read, you know, books, for instance, from, 
Vincent Bugliosi mm-hmm. uh, and and you know in Manson's case and Anne Rule in Ted Bundy's case. It's very interesting. Um, and I would also encourage, and we're going to put up resources on the website, you know, on, on what things to look for um, and what are typical signs, um, particularly of a sociopath. Right. Um, you know, everyone has to be very aware. You're, you're, the chance of you running into a psychopath uh, in your lifetime is, is it's probably, you know, uh, pretty slim. Um, but uh, to look for, you know, girls who are out there dating uh, or, you know, just or people befriending uh, the quiet one or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Uh, there are definitely some clear signs to look for. Um, and, and, you know, they describe serial killers. A lot of the, the victims describe that their eyes are just black. Yeah. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. So that's our show for tonight. Uh, We want to thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Please follow us on Twitter at UnhingedPC and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash unhingedpodcast. Also be sure to check out our website if you haven't done so already. It's at unhingedpodcast.com. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Take care.